snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. Oceans and seas, lakes and rivers are bodies of water that cover almost two-thirds of the Earth's surface. For centuries, they have captivated mankind by their mysteries, waves, and their effects on people's imaginations. In fact, former U.S. President John F. Kennedy once described our everlasting commitment to the sea like this: "It's because、uh, we all came from the sea, and it is an interesting、uh, biological fact that all of us have in our veins the exact same percentage of salt in our blood that exists in the ocean, and therefore、uh, we are tied to the ocean. And when we go back to the sea." Whether it is to sail or to watch it, we are going back from whence we came. But maritime historian Lincoln Payne is determined to go further and dig deeper into our intertwined relation with these masses of water. In his over 700-page tome, *The Sea and Civilization*, this American researcher peels away the cobwebs of history and charts a rather impressive panorama of human seafaring activities from the earliest days to date. The idea was to、uh, not embark on a lot of original research, but to do as much investigation of the original research that has been done and try to tie it together in a more or less seamless narrative. And to to really make sure that I put maritime experience and maritime enterprise at the center of the human story, where I think it it belongs. Recently, Shi Yu sat down with Mr. Payne to talk about his book, *The Sea and Civilization: How It Challenges the Traditional Eurocentric View of History and Why Focusing on the Water May Change the Way We See the World*. Let's take a listen. We know is seventy percent of the Earth is covered by water,、mm-hmm. but most of the historians, most of the people, general readers, they focus on what happened on the land. So, in your opinion, why is that? I think that to talk intelligently about the maritime aspect of human history requires a little bit of interest and knowledge of the technologies and the business apparatus and the legal apparatus that people have devised. To actually work on the water,、mm-hmm. and to to work in ports, and to become acquainted with people of different backgrounds and different orientations, and the way maritime history has generally been taught or written about is very technical and very oriented towards what kind of ships did people、yeah. use and how did they work, and all of a sudden. You might as well be talking about how does an electron microscope work for most people. They just don't. They don't care about the technology. Exactly. But it's really what happens as a result of going out on the water. And if you're afraid of the ships, then you're not going to talk about what happens on the water. So what I wanted to do is create a bridge between the. Technology of the ship and the technologies of the you know various different things that are related to that, and make it accessible to people so that they understood that there was this whole other not other world but this part of the world that we we had not been thinking about intelligently, and 
the sort of the big example that I used to give is that when we would talk about the British settlement of Australia, mm-hmm. people would run down to the to the dock and they would get on a ship and then however many months later they would be in Australia and that's where the story picks up again. Yeah. It's like, wait, how did how did they get across that ocean? How did they spend that many months at sea without dying? And what is the background of that whole thing in terms of technology, in terms of why they wanted to go, what the um, outcomes were that they expected, who else might have been interested, and why did the British win but not the French, and why didn't people from Indonesia settle Australia? All of those stories are very important, and some of them are stories about things that didn't happen, but most of them are, are stories about what did happen, and how do you convey that and give it a sense of a centrality in people's understanding of the world. We will talk about sea, but in this book, actually you cover a lot about lakes and rivers, like for ancient Egyptians, their relationships with the Rio of Nile, you know, Chinese people with the Yangtze River. Why did you cover those things? Well, because what happens inland has a great deal of influence and impact on what happens at sea. Mm-hmm. I realized there are only two chapters in the book that focus on a single political entity or country. The first one is Egypt and the second one is China. Yeah. The Egyptian chapter was very conscious because Egypt's maritime history and its navigational history is extremely important in terms of what our understanding of, of how trade happened 5,000 years ago, at least in one part of the world. It's also very important for our understanding of the technology of ships and what people were capable of doing 5,000 years ago because so many of their vessels have been preserved, more than 25 at this point, mm-hmm. uh, have been discovered. That's why I was interested in what happened in Egypt mm-hmm. um, because the Nile was central to their existence, their identity, to people's perceptions of the country. But they also had this trade on the Mediterranean and they had trade to a lesser extent on the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. In China's case, I think that the world generally, and that includes a lot of Chinese, have neglected or misunderstood China's maritime history and heritage. You know, people began doing stuff on the waters in inland waters. And the Chinese, the development of a, of a, of a canal system that connected the Pearl River to the Huanghe, what was it, 2300 years ago, 2200 years ago, during the conquest of the Hundred Duet is really extraordinary and it gave China this internal maritime lifeline Mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of north-south connectivity and there was also a lot of east-west connectivity but the east-west connectivity stopped in the east pretty much at the at the seashore Mm -hmm. officially but there were a lot of people who who traded anyway And so in order to trade, they had to have access to the interior and to get over those coastal mountains, the easiest way to go is by by river or to get around them. Mm -hmm. So the rivers are the birthplace of where maritime enterprise on the high seas begins. And what I think is interesting about the Chinese story is that you can see that stretched out over a much longer period and 
articulated over a much longer period. Yeah, you know, China is not a landlocked country because we have a really long coastline, but we are not a maritime nation, just like Britain or mm. Italy. From the Chinese history textbooks, you can learn like Chinese emperors in the ancient times. It seems like it didn't take maritime expansion as something really important. Well, I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One, as I said,、um, the Confucian aspect. Confucius was not big supporter of trade and commerce, and he thought that that was not a noble profession. But you find that's true in Hinduism, and it was、um, also in Europe. I mean, Napoleon's great put down of、um, the British as a nation of shopkeepers because they were so invested in trade, but. It was also true in Byzantine Greece, where、um, an emperor looked at his palace window and he saw a ship that had turned out to belong to his wife, and he, the empress, and he, and he said to her, "You know, burn the ship.、Um, I'm an emperor, and you would have me be nothing more than a common merchant." And he thought that that was beneath his dignity. And in and in ancient Greece, both Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers. Deplored maritime commerce, and they thought that people shouldn't have their their cities any closer to the coast than ten miles, because otherwise you would be polluted by alien influences and alien religion and alien languages and probably bad food. But in answer to the question of you know, did the emperors really dictate what was going, you know, whether people went to sea or not? Yes, of course they did. And one of the big concerns in China was the threat of alien. Invasion, not from the sea, because the sea technology hadn't yet developed to that extent,、mm-hmm. but from the west, from the Mongols,、um, and from Korea to a certain extent.、Mm-hmm. So the c- concern was with the enemy that you actually knew, and the enemy they actually knew were people who could actually invade, and that's why you have the Great Wall. And but that's and also the capital was. Very far to the west. I mean, that's where the origins of Han civilization are. It's not on the coast. But during the Southern Song Dynasty,、um, there's a wonderful quote from Emperor Gaozong, who said, "Profit derived from trade is most great, sometimes counted by millions of cash. Is this not far better than taxing the people?" So he had, had been forced by the invaders to move his capital to Hangzhou, and suddenly. He saw immediately the brilliant solution to the problem, which was, well, we can't make money taxing people because we don't have as many people under our control. Why don't we tax the trade, and why don't we promote the trade so that we can tax it? And so, a huge percentage of the、um, Southern Song revenues for a while came directly from sea trade.、Mm-hmm. So there was the opportunity to do that. So there is a reason, and there's an explanation for official Chinese attitudes towards maritime enterprise.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of it is dictated by custom and by geopolitical reality.、Mm-hmm. This is something quite interesting because you know during the Ming Dynasty, the Emperor sent Zheng He travel across the sea. Like rumor has it, he even traveled to Africa. That's not rumor. I think they did. Yeah. So when Zheng He started his expedition, it's actually 100 years earlier than than Columbus.、Mm-hmm. So if you say, oh, the Chinese maritime enterprise actually stops there, and、mm-hmm. what a shame! We're、yeah. always talking about it. Well, it is. <laughs> it it boggles the mind to think how differently the world would have. 
turned out if, in fact, the expeditions hadn't ended in 1433 and, and Columbus hadn't managed to lobby his sovereigns to back his effort to sail to Asia. He wasn't trying to sail to America. He was trying to get to Asia. <laughs> yeah. The reason he was trying to get to Asia was because that's where the money was. That's mm -hmm. where you could make the profits. Mm -hmm. The difference between Columbus and da Gama and Jean Hur, of course, is that Jean Hur was not a pioneer in terms of what he was doing. He, yeah. was, he was sailing along known sea routes. And in fact, Chinese geographical knowledge of overseas territories and overseas places grew much more during the Tang and, or the, certainly the Song and Yuan dynasties than it yeah. had, than it did under the Ming, which is fine. But the scale, certainly, of Zhang He's expeditions were unlike anything that anybody had ever seen, particularly over the distances that they were sailing. Mm -hmm. But even before that, the Yuan dynasty had, you know, invaded Java, which is 2,000 kilometers, um, or 2,000 miles, sea miles from, from China. And when I, when I talk to classes, I like to, to highlight some of the sort of the parallels of here's the European story that we talk about and then here's the story we, you know, that we don't talk about that's actually pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. For instance, in, ten, uh, in the 1020s, a Chola kingdom or king in southern India decided to invade Sri Vijaya across mm -hmm. the Bay of Bengal. Mm -hmm. And that's 1,500 miles with a huge fleet. And it's documented that they did this and that they sacked various cities and they took various plunder. And then 40 years later, you have William the Conqueror sailing from France to England, which is about 25 miles. It's hardly on the same scale. Yeah. But we don't know that, that story in the West. And I think partly because we don't know that story in the West, it's not really even well known in the East. Yeah. So there are lots of, of stories that sort of upend our traditional understanding of what people were doing at sea in Asia compared with what they were doing in the West. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. And so I find out a lot of the characters kind of mention about this ripple effects. Something we think is isolated is something singular, but actually it affects other countries, other regions. And for me as a Chinese, when I read that chapter about the Yuan Dynasty, because Yuan Dynasty are nomadic people, I think they had nothing to do with maritime history yeah. or maritime heritage. But it turns out, well, actually they, they did reach out. Yeah. It is quite interesting. And, well, and, and that's sort of the, the great sort of story about the great um, sort of counter narrative to the idea that the Chinese are an inland people or continental people and the British are a maritime people. Well, you know, if you look at the merchant marine fleets of the world today, the Chinese have the biggest merchant fleet and the British have a tiny, tiny little merchant fleet that's, you know, very insignificant. Mm -hmm. The Chinese Navy is huge, the British Navy is tiny, the Royal Navy. But the story about the Mongols is really great because you can say that China has a problematic or complicated relationship with the sea because they had a big sea coast, but they also had a long continental border. Yeah. Well, the Mongols didn't have any sea coast, and they didn't have any problem going to sea once they got there. Yeah. But again, the Mongols didn't have to worry about the Mongols to the west because they weren't going to be invaded. So they could go to Japan, and they could go to Vietnam, they could go to Java. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't do very well, but they could still, they could do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it gives the lie to the idea that there are 
maritime people and there are continental people and you know that's their cultural identity and that's who they are and it's frozen in time that's it's just not true and you know from a policy perspective especially it's enormously unhelpful but i'm curious do you have a favorite part of the maritime history i do actually have a favorite <laughs> story i have i have several favorite stories in the book but i think the one that i like the most is takes place in the indian ocean in the 11th it's it's a, one of a collection of stories by a guy named buzurg ibn shahriar who was from persian gulf area and he collected stories from merchants who'd sailed all over the Indian Ocean and to China. And the best story for my money is the one about a merchant named Ismail who sails down the coast of Africa to um, what's now basically Mozambique. Mm -hmm. And he's trading there and among the things he's trading is um, our slaves. Mm -hmm. And the slave trade you know, something that's been going on in Africa and elsewhere for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And the king, the local ruler, uh, decided to come down to, to Ismail's ship and look around. Mm -hmm. And he was there with his, his retinue of, you know, elders and so on. And Buzurg took one look at him and he said, well, in the slave market, he would fetch X amount of money and his clothes would also get some money so he just packed him up and threw him down below with all the other slaves and sailed away. So this king, who's not named unfortunately, goes to uh, Basra and he's sold at a slave market and he is taken I think to Baghdad and he learns Arabic and he becomes a Muslim and he converts and then he goes on a pilgrimage to Mecca mm -hmm. and he goes to Mecca and then he escapes his master and he makes his way to Cairo. And this is all in the 900s. Yeah. So he's not, you know, he doesn't have WeChat or anything and GPS. So he gets to Cairo and he stays there for a while and he decides he wants to go home. And so he makes his way down the Nile River and across to the Red Sea and then down the coast of Africa and finally makes it back to where he grew up and where he ruled. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, the people in his kingdom didn't know what had happened to him. And since they didn't know, they didn't replace him. Mm -hmm. So he gets home and he, and he resumes his throne. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, the trader Ismail has come, you know, been sailing back and forth and back and forth because it's a very lucrative trade. Mm -hmm. He gets back there one day and he's brought before the king and he's like, oh my God, what are you doing here? And the king says, well, you know, I didn't like the fact that you kidnapped me and sold me into slavery, but you are responsible for my becoming a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that's very dear to me. And I also convinced my people to become Muslims like myself. So I'm not going to hurt you because you're responsible for my being a Muslim. What I would like you to do, though, is to go back to where you came from and encourage your fellow merchants and fellow Muslims that we are also Muslims and that they should be welcome here to mm -hmm. trade with us. As for deciding not to come on your ship to say goodbye, I have my reasons for not saying or for not doing so. Mm -hmm. What I like about that story is that it tells this story about trade, the circulation of people and goods over a vast area that you know, in yeah. the nine in the tenth century, but the story about the transmission of Islam to this remote part of the East African coast and how it could be beneficial to the community mm -hmm. to adopt Islam because then you were part of a larger world yeah. is such an important story that you know people forget that one of the reasons that people become you know 
adopt one religion or another is just but they want to feel part of a community mm -hmm. and so feeling part of a community and having a bond that transcends you know not having a common language or not having common foods or not having a common background and you see this happening again and again and again people following trade routes yeah. and establishing communities and feeling welcome it just sounds like seafaring has a huge part to play in globalization it's just oh, it in does. terms of ideas religion well, commerce everybody sort of thinks of the the 21st century as this sort of globalized electronic age and yeah. everybody talks about the cloud as being where all of your data is stored mm -hmm. up in the cloud well most of the cloud is actually underwater and most of the transmissions that happen between the communications is underwater. Mm -hmm. And the computer cables that go underwater from continent to continent, mm -hmm. the same lines that telegraphs and telephone wires traveled from continent to continent, and those cables followed the steamship routes from continent to continent. Mm -hmm. So there is this great storyline that you can follow across generations yeah. of technological development and it all looks pretty much the same if you if literally if you look at the c communications cables and where they are today it's exactly where they were 150 years ago when they were first being laid down by by steamships mm. but it's made me come to the last chapter because you mentioned about you know with the development of the container ship with oil tanks with this remote docking it just seems like maritime enterprise is a little bit disappear from people's horizon mm -hmm. so in your opinion what's going to happen in the future well i think that something that's happened certainly in the last 20 years but even to a certain extent is is escalating in the few years since i wrote the book which was only you know it only came out in 2013 but the awareness of global warming its impact in the arctic in particular and in antarctica the threats of sea level rise to a billion people around the world who live in coastal plains coastal floodplains whether it's the yangtze or the Ganja in India, or the Indus, or the Mississippi in the United States, or the Rhine in Europe. A lot of people are going to be paying a lot of attention to what's happening in the sea. And the infrastructure, it's one thing to displace a billion people. Um, obviously, that's its own challenges, which are, you know, you just say, displace a billion people. You know, who knows what's going to happen as a result <laughs> of that. But to put it in terms that businessmen can understand, when you threaten the infrastructure for container shipping and railroads and trucks mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you can build ships all you want but if you don't have the shoreside infrastructure you can't use them mm -hmm. so ships have always been pushing the envelope for what people can do with logistically at shore mm -hmm. it's very very easy to build a big ship yeah. it's much much harder to build a big container port and huge cranes and get the trucks and the highways and the rail and all that in place so that you can sort of move those goods efficiently. It's easy to move them efficiently on the water. It's on the land that's the big problem. Mm -hmm. And if you look around the world, you know, most traffic jams are, are caused by huge 40-foot containers just sort of sitting there taking up a lot of space. Yeah. So I think that there is a heightened awareness about what happens at sea from 
a perspective of just the basic mechanics of global warming threatening where people live. Mm -hmm. I think there is also heightened awareness about what happens at sea from concerns about overfishing. And I think that there's also going to be heightened concerns about rising sea level and the opening of um, seaways that didn't happen before. Mm -hmm. And also the, trans the changes that are happening to particular fisheries, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef in Australia mm -hmm. or the waters off of northern Japan where the sea temperatures are changing or rising faster than anywhere else on Earth. Mm -hmm. But as I think, as these changes happen, I think that people will take a renewed interest in what happens at sea. Mm -hmm. And both in terms of um, the environmental consequences and also the commercial consequences. So I think as historians look more at the sea and in new and different ways, it's going to help the public's awareness improve and hopefully that will have a positive effect on policy. That was American maritime historian Lincoln Payne discussing his book The Sea and Civilization. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world, and we will try our best to keep you posted. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download our podcast by searching the keyword Ink and Quill on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. See you next time.